Father, we come to your presence in the name of your son, Jesus, who died for us upon the cross, who you have exalted and glorified and given to him the name above every name. We honor you. We bless you today, Lord. We thank you for the privileges, the privilege we have as God's children to worship you together, Father. Father, I ask you that you would let your word go with power, touch our lives, touch our hearts. In all things that you would be glorified. I ask you that you would reach out your hand and heal those that are sick, do miracles in this place. And for everything you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, honor, and praise because you alone are worthy. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Please be seated. Really honored and blessed to be here this morning. I wouldn't have made the drive if my wife wasn't with me. We were both sleepy, but we kept each other up by talking. So it's good. Praise God. Amen. Uh, do we have the pictures ready, brother? Okay, now, uh, I'll tell you when to change the picture. I'll give you a cue. I'll say next picture, next picture, next picture. This is what we do, preaching the gospel of Jesus. Gospel crusade, reaching the unreached, church planting, training pastors, overseeing churches, Bible school, orphanage. Um, we do about 10 campaigns every year in Africa, in addition to crusades in India, Indonesia, and other places. And uh, in those crusades, we, I don't know, the only true bookkeeping of souls is in heaven. But we see around a million people make decisions for Jesus in those campaigns. Then church planting through our ministry. Over the years, we have seen over 1,500 churches planted. We train pastors overseeing churches. I oversee about 400 churches in Africa. We have a church movement that's growing. So we oversee them. We train them. Then we have a church planting Bible school. We actually just finished building a dormitory for our students. Then we have an orphanage in, uh, in uh, Zimbabwe. Okay, the next one, please. This is Beauty and the Beast. Uh, <laughs> Britta and me. Uh, she was with me in Africa, in Zambia. So this is at our... The final night of our second campaign in Zambia. We do two campaigns back to back each time. So this was the second campaign when she was with me. The next one is, uh, this is, no, this is, uh, this is a very a close friend of mine. He's the great grandson of famous evangelist Smith Wigglesworth. So he pastors a church of about 5,000 in, in South Africa. Humble man, because before he became pastor, he used to, uh, he used to, do sound for actually there was a group called um, Vine Song. I don't know if they've ever been here. Uh, a singing group that travel all over the world. Vine Songs. So he used to be their roadie, do their sound. So he he comes to all our crusades in Africa, helps us with the PA system and all that. He's just a brilliant guy. And the next one is uh, this is me with one of my house pets. Uh, uh, you know, they actually, they, they do two things. Firstly, they, they, treat, they teach you how to interact with these lions because they're wild animals, you know. And, uh, and the second thing is that they actually feed the lions real good before you go out with them. Because <laughs> lions only kill when they're hungry. But lions are like you and me. You can be full and still feel like some chicken nuggets, you know. So, you know, so... I mean, lions can backslide, you know. This is, man of God looks tasty. So, uh, but he, he, he did turn around and look at me, but he decided he didn't like dark meat. So, I was, uh, 
So anyway, so this is uh, me with the lion in Zimbabwe. And the next picture is, uh, this is uh, me preaching in uh, Chawama, Zambia. On this field at one time, we had 30,000 people baptized with the Holy Ghost at one time. So this is, uh, and the next one is, uh, this is in the town of Lobengula in Zimbabwe. This is one of our crusades, the final night. And the next one is, this is in, I think this is in Chipata, Zambia, the final night. The next one is, this is in George, Zambia, altar call, the final night. That was when my wife was with me. The next one is, this is people getting baptized with the Holy Ghost in George, when my wife was with me. And the next one is, this is, now this is interesting. This is in Sabana de la Mar in the Dominican Republic. I had never been there before. But a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine was going there this January. And you know, this, this, this last winter was horrendous. So I just wanted to get away somewhere. So he said, do you want to come to Dominican Republic? So I said, is it warm? He said, it's very nice and warm. So I said, I'm going. So he rented a stadium. And I was, when I came to the town, it was a tiny little town. Hardly anyone lived there. And they had a baseball stadium because the Dominicans are crazy about baseball. And, uh, and I looked at the official statistics. The town, the whole area had 12,000 people. But on the fourth night, we had 20,000 people on the field. Now, I don't know where they came from. But this is the picture on the, uh, of, of the last night, you know. And the next one is, uh, this is in Kharkiv, Ukraine, where all this trouble is going on. And uh, this was the last night in Kharkiv. As you, as, you, as you can see, the people are dressed in the winter clothes. This was the crusade was held indoors in an ice hockey stadium because it was very cold outside and still people were in the winter clothes because there's no heating. And I'm actually going back there in January. Uh, uh, anyway, the next one is, uh, this is in Sangye Island, Indonesia. This was a, a very far outlying island. You had to fly for several hours, then you got on a ship and went by ship the whole day and you're almost in the Philippines but the island belongs to Indonesia so when I, I and they had never had an outreach there before so we went there with a team when I got off the boat there was a brass band waiting for us so I was surprised you know but it turned out that the governor was a Christian and he had come with a brass band to welcome us so I'm a bit antsy about going to places like this because I don't like bugs and rats and all that but so I was wondering where we were staying. He was saying, he said, you're going to stay with me in the governor's mansion. And it was a huge place. It was like the White House. And uh, I mean, we had like 10 course meals and air conditioning and servants waiting on us day and night. Fantastic. So I said, this sets a standard for how missions should be done. You know, <laughs> so that's so. So we, we had uh, we had a wonderful crusade, as you can see. Thousands of people came out and got saved and healed. And then we left a team behind and started a church. And today there's a strong church there in, in uh, Sangi Island, Indonesia. And the next one is, uh, this is in Jakarta, Indonesia, the altar call. As you can see, this is the world's largest Muslim country. But people are getting saved there. And the next one is, uh, this is uh, very conservative Muslims at the altar call in the United Arab Emirates. I was there for a week, uh, and a lot of people got saved. And the next one is, uh, this is in Beirut, Lebanon. There's a crippled lady who's walking. And the next one is, uh, 
This is when I was in India. I was back in India for, after 25 years, I was back in India this February. I'm actually going back in December. And this lady had been in a car accident, and she was completely horizontal, couldn't move her arms, couldn't move her legs. She was totally paralyzed, and God raised her up and healed her. Amen. And, and you see this lady holding her hand up, the lady with the glasses, the big smile. She and her husband are pastors, and they were very, very conservative. And they hated my guts from day one. They, they, I mean, literally, you know, if they were not Christians, I'd be dead. You know, they really disliked me. But on the last night, when this thing happened, suddenly they were smiling. They were hugging me. They even came with gifts for me. And I said, praise God. You know, they, they, anyway, the next one is... Uh, uh, this is a mother walking with a little child who was born paralyzed, had never walked before. This, I believe, was in Mozambique. The next one is, uh, this is a lady who was also born paralyzed. She used to be carried around in a cart. As you can see, the ushers in the back are holding that cart up. And suddenly she got up from that cart and began to walk for the first time ever. So, and the next one is, uh, this. now this is interesting. This man... Uh, I had a crusade in this town six years ago, and he came with this boy who was a newborn baby, a few months old. And the boy was born with a club foot. That means his foot was twisted like this with the heel pointing upwards, and it was curled up like a ball. That's why it's called a club foot. looks like a club. And the Lord healed that boy. And uh, six years later, I was back in town, and he came with the boy and took his shoe off and showed me his foot, how his foot was normal. So I asked him, what are you doing these days? He says, well, after the Lord healed my son, I got saved, and now I'm pastoring a Pentecostal church in town. So this is, uh, and the next one is, uh, this is one of our schools of ministry for pastors in Zambia. The next one is, this is, now this is, there's a town called Zomba in Malawi, which was actually, they say it was the southernmost Muslim city on the African continent. And more than 20 years ago, I rented the stadium and held a campaign there. And we had a real breakthrough. I mean, huge numbers of people came to the Lord. And then we planted a church. And I put this man, he was much younger, fresh out of Bible school, as pastor. Today, that church has 4,000 members. uh, And then they have started a network of 26 churches all around town. Because in Africa, people don't have cars and often there's no public transportation. So you have to start churches where the people live. And... uh, Today, Zomba is no longer a Muslim town because the majority of the people are Pentecostal. So this is uh, Zomba in Malawi. And the next one is, uh, this is our newly finished orphanage building in Zimbabwe. We just finished it. The next one, this is our dormitory building. It will sleep 70 students for our Bible school. And the next one, this is again me preaching in Africa. So this is my day job, what I do for a living. Praise God. Amen. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verses 14, 15 and 16. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. For as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Amen. Paul begins by saying that I am a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. 
In other words, Paul looked at himself as a person who was in debt to everybody. I'm a debtor to the Greeks. I'm a debtor to the barbarians. I'm, better, uh, I'm in debt to the wise and to the unwise. He looked at himself as a person who was in debt. Now, you have to understand that this can appear to be very strange in the light of how we think in America because we have this old thing. We worship the concept of freedom in this country. And sometimes we carry it to a point where we say, we don't owe anyone anything. Don't tread on me. No one tells me what I'm going to do with my life. If I don't like this church, I'll go somewhere else where I like it more. And because of that, most people, their relationships are very short-lived. They, they have very few friends who they have, they have been friends with for many, many years. There's a, the whole life is a series of broken commitments and broken relationships. In fact, we don't understand what commitment is because commitments often get in the way of our exercise of what we call our personal freedoms. But Paul says, I am in debt. I'm in debt to everybody. Now, what was he talking about? To help you understand uh, this, I will tell you the names of people who I'm in debt to, who I consider myself to be in lifelong debt to. And these are debts I can never get away from. And I'll be indebted to these people the rest of my life as long as I live. The number one, the first person I'm in debt to is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he loved me when I was without hope. When I didn't have anything to look forward to. When nobody loved me, Jesus loved me. When I didn't believe in myself, Jesus believed in me. And he loved me so much that when I was a sinner, he gave his own life for me. Nobody else would do that. But Jesus did it for me. And the Bible even says that I am bought with a price. Not only has he done something for me. But he has actually purchased me. Now we think that the days of slavery are over. Nobody owns anyone. But Paul says. I am a doulos. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word doulos actually means. A slave who has been bought. My will is nothing unless it is submitted to his will. I cannot make my plans in life and ask him to bless it. But I have to seek his plan and purpose for my life. Because only in that, in that bond do I find what true freedom is. So first person I am in debt to is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's another person I'm thinking of. It's a guy called Keith Frampton. Keith Frampton was the second son of Mr. and Mrs. K.P. and Pauline Frampton. Mr. and Mrs. Frampton were the wealthiest Christians in England in the 60s and the 70s. They gave millions of pounds, British pounds, away to missions. I mean, they were huge givers. And they had three boys. Clive, Keith, and David. One day, Keith and David, his younger brother, came to Mr. and Mrs. Frampton and said, God has called us to go into missions. So the oldest son, Clive, he stayed and took care of the family business, which he still does because Mr. and Mrs. Frampton are in heaven. 
David went down to Ghana in Africa. And Keith got on a bus. And he went to Istanbul in Turkey where he got on another bus and went to Tehran. This was in the 70s. And he, was go- he went to Afghanistan, then he went to Pakistan, he was going to India and to Nepal to minister to those hundreds of thousands of young Westerners who would go to India and Nepal to meditate in the ashrams there and to do drugs. That was what he felt he wanted to do. So he came to the city of Lahore in Pakistan and stayed there for one or two nights with some friends. And his friends told me later on, that they heard him early the next morning in his room and he was praying loudly. He was saying, God, I'm just here for these two days. Give me one soul from this Muslim land who will serve you. Just one disciple for Jesus. And then he did the unthinkable. He took a pile of tracts which he began to distribute on the main street of that city. Now you don't do that in a Muslim country. Because the chances of you surviving are very remote. You can be killed, lynched for doing that. But Keith didn't know of the dangers. He just stood there handing out tracts. And on the other side of the street, I was walking. And I looked across the street and I see this very tall white man, about six foot five, six foot six, handing out tracts to my fellow countrymen. And I remember looking at the man from across the street and I remember studying his face and I thought this man has a peace that I have never known. He has something that I have never had. I need to find out what he has been smoking. (laughs) So I crossed the street and I asked him, I said, excuse me, sir, who are you? Because everybody was smoking or shooting something. So I asked him, I said, who are you? And Where are you from? He said, I'm from England and I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he began to share the gospel with me. And as he began to talk about Jesus, that was the first time in my life I had ever heard of Jesus. I'd never been to church, never met a Christian in my life. And then I felt in my heart that this is what I have been waiting for. And I gave my life to Jesus. That was a turning point in my life. I have never met Keith Frampton since then. But I owe him a debt. Because it cost him something to bring the gospel to me. He had to pay a price. He had to make some sacrifices to take the gospel to someone lost like I was. Then I'm also thinking of Pastor Jim Turner who I shared with you about when I was here last time, if you remember. When I got saved and I started preaching on the streets, I went to prison for a year for preaching the gospel. I came out and I wanted to be baptized. But nobody wanted to baptize me because they said that whoever baptizes you The fundamentalists will kill you. They will kill that pastor. They'll burn his church. They'll kill his church members and burn people's houses. And there'll be big persecution. It'll be in the papers. And there'll be general persecution of Christians. So we have decided we are not going to baptize any Muslim converts anymore. And then Pastor Jim Turner was a U.S. missionary, Southern Baptist. He 
at three young children. He came to me. He said, I will baptize you. So I said, Pastor, it's very dangerous. He says, I know, but I know that God's hand is over your life. And I don't want you to miss anything that God has for you. So I, I will baptize you. So he took me to the Arabian Sea and he baptized me. A few weeks later, I had to leave the country because I was, they wanted to kill me. And five months, six months, actually five months later, I was in Sweden. I got a letter from another missionary that Pastor Turner had been killed. And his body was found up in the mountains in the Himalayas. You know, you cannot imagine what I went through. Because I couldn't understand why an American missionary with three children, with the calling of God in his life, would give everything so that an Arab boy could be water baptized and take Holy Communion. That was the main reason I want to be baptized because I couldn't take Holy Communion. And I think of him very often. And I owe him a debt that I can never repay. Every time I preach the gospel, I give an altar call. It's like I'm trying to pay off a debt I can never repay. You see, I, these are things I cannot walk away from. I cannot just say, I'm an American, I'm free. I can do what I like. I can give you more people on my list. I owe a debt to my pastor, Sam Smucker. And my home church, the worship center. 20 years ago, they helped me and my family. They got us a green card and helped us move to America. And for the past 20 years, that church has supported me every month. They have believed in me. They have invested in me. Now, have there ever been anything my pastor has said that I don't agree with? Oh, yeah. But I'm loyal and I'm faithful. I owe my home church and my pastor too much to walk away from. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's nothing that my pastor could do to cause me to walk away from him or walk away from my home church because I'm in debt. I'm in debt to anybody who has ever believed in me or prayed for me or invested in my life. Then I'm thinking of a lady. You probably never heard of her. Her name was Margit Turfiel. She was born in the village where my wife grew up. She was my mother-in-law's friend since they were small children. That lady lived in that little village all her life. But you know what she did? For 30 years, she prayed for me, for our ministry, for my family every single day. And every month she used to send me an envelope with 100 kroner, which is about in today's money is $15. Now you might say, what can a guy like me do with $15? Because when I do a crusade like this, it costs me 25000 But if you understood the love and the faith behind those $15, sometimes it's not just the monetary value of things. But it is the love and the faith. That lady had very little. But for 30 years, she prayed for us until she died 
I think it was last year or year before last. I'll always be in debt to her. And there's many people like that in my life. You have never heard of them. They are not famous, but their names are written in heaven. So I'm in debt. I'm also in debt to the friends I grew up with, to the guys I served with in the military who are, who are still not saved. Because if there was any, any table of merit that God looked at when he chose to save somebody, I would be at the bottom of the list. But for some reason, I never understood why God had mercy on me. He reached down to the bottom of the barrel and he picked me out. So I'm in debt to the sinners who I preach to. My life is no longer my own. It has been bought. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was my own until the day I met Jesus. But since then my life is no longer my own. I don't make my own decisions on what I have to do. Those things don't count. The important thing is what does God want? Amen. So Paul says I am one in debt. He lived his life as someone who was in debt. And then he says, verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Because he was in debt, he made the preaching of the gospel his number one priority. He was always ready to preach the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is nothing he negotiated about or he prayed about. He just did it. He preached the gospel. We must preach the gospel. That is why the church is here. That is why you and I are here to preach the gospel. Because our lives are bought with a price. It is no longer about us. We cannot say with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I don't know where old blue eyes is today. But I can tell you this much, his way didn't work. I am bought with a price. Paul was always ready to preach the gospel. If there was anything he was ever ready to do, he always was ready to preach the gospel. He never said, well, I'm going to pray about it. No, he didn't do that. He, you know, there are certain things you just don't pray about. You know why? It's in the book. If it's in the book, you don't have to pray about it. Just do it. Nike stole that slogan from us. It's ours. It's not Nike's. Just do it. Preach the gospel. Then he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason he's not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. You know why people are ashamed of the gospel these days? Is because they The gospel they believe in is a powerless gospel. Let me tell you a story. Let's go to Acts chapter 14. Are you with me so far? Thank you. Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, there's a place where 
the disciples of Jesus were persecuted and they fled. In verse 6 it says, And they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lies about. Now these people were persecuted. They were fleeing from the Jews. And, but wherever they went, you know what they did? Verse 7. And there they preached the They preached the gospel. Now, so here's Paul. He's preaching the gospel in this town. Verse 8, and a big group of people had gathered to hear him as he spoke. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. He leaped and walked. Now, Paul is in Lystra. And he stops and the little crowd gathers and he begins to preach what? Now, I don't know the contents of Paul's message. But here is a man in his audience. And this man was crippled from his mother's womb, had never walked before. This man lived in a fatalistic society. Fatalism is when people believe that whatever has happened to you or happens to you or will happen to you, good or bad, is all the will of God. I grew up as a Muslim, and Muslims are fatalists. Everything good or bad comes from God. So just sit back and take it. That is your lot in life. That is what God has decided. There's no point in fighting it. No point in arguing about it. Because the more you ask yourself these existentialist questions, it'll just make you miserable. It is better just to lay back and take it as it is. And you know, there are large segments of Christianity that is fatalistic good or bad comes from God just take it it's the will of God God has a bigger purpose through it you might not see it but there's a purpose one day you'll find out so this man had grown up that way he was born crippled and I'm sure he had asked himself all these questions why am I crippled God gave me two legs but I'm still crippled and everyone had said look just don't ask yourself these questions just accept this is the way things are but Paul came but whatever it was that Paul preached that day had such an effect on the man that it lifted him up from a place of hopelessness and despair to a place of such faith that Paul could see on the man's face that he had faith to be healed. I don't know what Paul preached. I don't know how long his message was. But whatever it was, it had such an effect and an impact on the man's life that it lifted the man's spirit from a place of despair and hopelessness and fatalism to a place of such faith that Paul could see it on his face that he had faith and all that Paul had to say was rise up and walk and the man rose up and walked. When I read this I thought what a disservice to us. Some Paul should have designated, designated somebody to write down that message. A stenographer to write down everything. And he could have saved that sermon for posterity. I know they didn't have CD recorders those days or tape recorders or video cameras. But it would have been great to have a copy of that sermon. Because if I had a copy, I can tell you what I would do. 
I would ditch everything else. That's the only message I would preach. Because wherever I would go, I would preach that message and lame people would get up and walk. So I said, I said, Lord, what is it that Paul preached? And the Lord said, it is right here in the book. And I looked and looked and then I realized it says in verse 7, and they preached the gospel. That's what Paul preached. He preached the gospel. So then I suddenly realized, why don't these things happen today? Well, it's because the Lord said people don't preach the gospel anymore. So I began to try to figure out what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Let me just share this with you. What the gospel is. When we hear the word gospel these days, we think of a certain kind of music with a certain kind of beat. We call that gospel. The gospel is the story of the virgin birth, the sinless life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is that incredible story of Jesus Christ. How he was born of a virgin. How he lived a sinless life. How he was whipped and beaten and bruised and crowned with thorns and crucified on that cross. How he died upon that cross and how he, he, he was buried and how he was raised up on the third day. How he ascended to heaven and how he's coming back. That story is the gospel. And Paul says that gospel is foolishness to those who are smart, to the Greeks. And it's a stumbling block for the Jews. Now, why is it foolishness? You think of it. I mean, just think of it in today's terms. We get up before people and we talk about a man. We say he's the savior of mankind. He can save your life from your sins. And instead of heaven, you'll go to heaven. He'll change your life completely. He'll come and live inside of you. The first thing about him, he was born of a virgin. Now, who do you think is going to believe that? Hmm? And then he was whipped and bruised and beaten. And in that process, he bore all of our physical diseases and infirmities. And then he carried that cross to Calvary where he was nailed to that cross and he hung six hours upon that cross and he died bearing our sins upon himself. Who's going to believe that? Then he died and he was buried. That's about the only part of the story that makes sense. But then he rose up from the dead. Then he physically ascended to heaven. And that he is physically coming back. Now that story is foolishness to modern man. So what do People do these days. They say, wait, we've got to retool this story. We've got to clean up this story. To make it palatable and acceptable to modern man. So we don't have to talk too much about the virgin birth. That's not important. Plus, let's take away all this talk about the blood. Let's, let's, not, let's not talk about, we don't want people, don't want butcher shop religion. <laughs> let's not talk about the blood. Let's not talk about miracles. 
Let's not talk about his resurrection. So we have different kinds of different versions of the gospel. And you can go to whatever church you want depending upon what your taste is. But the power of God is only found in one gospel. And that's the gospel I described. The story of Jesus as, the, as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John tell it. Because that is the gospel where the power of God is found. That is the gospel when people hear it, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, and people's lives are changed. And that is the gospel Paul said, I'm not ashamed of because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now in Sweden, the press... They coined an expression for it years ago. I don't hear much of that anymore. They call it Pinkst Evangelium, which means the Pentecostal gospel. As opposed to other versions of the gospel. The Pentecostal gospel, the gospel of Pentecost. They said, these are the people who preach about Jesus, how he was born of a virgin. They make much of his blood and talk about his death and resurrection, how he bore our sins and diseases. And then people come and they lay hands on them and people are healed and people's lives are changed. They called it the Pentecostal gospel. The kind of gospel that many people are ashamed of. Now, if you were to ask, why do we see miracles in Africa like this? It's simple, because we preach the gospel. We don't have that level of intellectualism either. There's no one there who stands up and says, you know, Christopher Alam, I'm too smart to believe those stories. They don't. There, you preach the gospel. They believe the gospel. And so people are saved. People are healed. And that is the gospel Paul said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because that gospel of Jesus. That gospel of his cross. And his blood. Is the power of God. Unto salvation. Unto healing. Unto deliverance. That word salvation is the Greek word soterio. Soto. It comes from soterios. Which means wholeness. Salvation. Forgiveness. Healing. Peace. Deliverance. Unto every. Everyone who believes, everybody who believes it will experience it. Hallelujah. Everybody who believes the gospel will be saved. Everybody who believes the gospel, he can have a part of everything that God has for him. It doesn't matter which corner of the earth he lives in. It is the power of God unto salvation. Then he says to the Jew and also to the Greek, this gospel is for the Jews also. Amen. I think the Jewish people, we owe them much more than just wear a kippah on our heads and yarmulke and say shalom y'all. I think the Jewish people are loved by God. They need much more. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear that story. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, let me tell you a story. Let me wrap this up by telling you a story. About the power of the gospel. You know, 25 years ago, those were the days I used to do a lot of campaigns in India. I started in South India, and, uh, but I found there were many Christians in South India. So I asked the brothers there, I said, where are 
you see, you really see the heathen and people are unreached and very dangerous. They say, well, there's a state called Orissa State. He says, that place is very dangerous. They actually kill pastors and burn churches and burn missionaries alive. So I said, let's go there. Orissa State at that time, 25 years ago, had 83 million people. Today, I think it's closer to 150 million people. Very crowded place. So I started going to Orissa State and began to preach the gospel. We preached the gospel and planted churches. I'll never forget one of the first towns I went to. There was a little Baptist church there. And we held a crusade there. I asked that Baptist pastor, I said, who was the last foreign preacher who came here? He looked in the eyes, he says, there was a guy called William Carey. I heard that he was here. And that was in the 1700s. That's the kind of place it is. So anyway, I was doing crusades in Orissa State. Then in 1989, uh, in the early part of 89, I think end of 88 or 89, there was one part of Orissa State where many people had gotten saved. And... The Hindu militants had gone on a rampage and they had burnt, if I remember correctly, about 20 churches and they had killed a bunch of people, Christians, and they had uh, burned people's houses, they had beaten people up. It was very bad there. It was so bad that the government of India, the central, the federal government, uh, declared a clampdown on all religious activities in, in, in that part of the state. So uh, Christians or Hindus, for that matter, nobody was allowed to meet because they didn't want large gatherings of people of any, any religion. So I said to my, I called the brother in Orissa. I said, I want to go there to do, and do a crusade. He says, Pastor, you could get killed. I said, we all have to die. What better place and time to die than die preaching the gospel in Orissa? He said, well, if you want to go, I'll go with you. So he set up a crusade for us. So I'll never forget, I, I flew with a team to Orissa, then we drove 18 hours or so by bus. And finally, we came to this town in the middle of nowhere, up in the mountains. And there were all these people there. So they had organized a crusade. Now, this, the town was surrounded by jungles. So that's why the crusade was held in the daytime. Normally the crusades are at night, but the crusade was held in the daytime because they say there's lots of tigers and wild animals in the jungle and they often come out even into the town. So at night, so people are afraid. So we'll hold the crusade in the daytime. I said, thank you very much. So, <laughs> so we had the crusade in the daytime and I'm going to describe to you what happened there. The first day was good. Second day, the third night. Now I had fasted. And I had prayed because I wanted a breakthrough. So I had a red hot message all prepared, written down on a paper. And I was preaching that third day when suddenly I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say, stop and start praying for the sick. So I said, Lord, I've got a message here. I prepared. The Lord said, no, no, you stop and start praying for the sick. So I know one thing, you better obey God. So I stopped and I said, I'm not going to pray for the sick. I'm going to pray for the deaf. So first I prayed for the deaf. Then I prayed for the blind and many people were healed. Then I said, I'm going to pray for those who are crippled and cannot walk. And I began to pray. And as I began to pray, I noticed there was a, there was a, a, a mother sitting with a little boy on her lap. And this boy was born paralyzed and he was blind. And he got up, began to see, began to walk. I'll never forget that. And people in the front got very excited. But then I heard a lot of shouting, a lot of a big commotion in the back of the crowd. Now, you've got to understand, there's thousands and thousands of people spread out. 
and way in the back I hear this noise and I, and I begin to ask, what is it? And, and they can't hear me because everybody's shouting and everybody's looking that way. So, you know, and then I could see after some time there was, there was a man trying to walk to the front through the crowd and his, his, he had his hands up in the air and as the people saw him coming they kind of opened up the crowd op, crowd opened up to let him pass through and he was coming to the front as he got closer i i heard him shouting he was shouting at the top of his voice he said jesus is alive jesus is alive jesus is alive he was shouting the same thing again and again he got closer and when he got really close, my interpreter, who was a local pastor, saw him and literally began to shake and tremble. He almost dropped his microphone. And he, I mean, he was shouting, this man was shouting and this man was shaking. The next thing, this guy jumps on the platform, grabs a microphone from the interpreter. Now the whole crowd can see him because he's up on the platform and he screams into the microphone he says Jesus is alive and the place came unglued people went completely nuts there were trees and people were climbing up the trees some people were falling off the trees I mean the place was going completely crazy everyone was running screaming shouting and we lost control of the crowd then this man jumps off the platform and he starts walking in this direction with his hands in the air shouting Jesus is alive Jesus is alive and as he goes all these thousands and thousands of people begin to follow him and soon there's a couple of trees couple of hundred yards away he disappears between the trees and the whole crowd follows him and the field is totally empty it's just my team from Sweden and the pastors and I, and I can't I have no one to preach to. I, I want to do an altar call, no altar call, nothing, nobody. And, and I'm just standing there wondering, what have I done? Have I upset them? And who is this guy? He was just like the Pied Piper, you know, he took, he took the whole crowd with him. So the main pastor, he, he, I, I said, brother, what happened? He was white as a sheep. He says, brother, this man, he said, he, he is the leader of this very violent extremist. And he says, this man was actually born crippled. He, he, used to, he couldn't stand without, you know, those big crutches they had that goes, go under the armpits. And he said, he couldn't even stand without these crutches. Uh, he couldn't stand on his legs. He was paralyzed. But he says, but he was so bad, he could stand on one crutch and beat people up with the other crutch. He was very violent. So he says, he, he and his group... They are the ones who have burnt all these churches. He says they must have heard that there's a crusade going on here. So he came with two truckloads of his men. And when I saw them coming, he says, I, I went to the back just to watch him to see what he was doing. He said a couple of his guys had hand grenades in their hands. And that's what they do. He said, ready to throw the grenades into the crowd. And that will be the end of the campaign. You know, kill a few people. And he says, I saw him. He says, he was standing there. And as you were preaching, he got angrier and angrier. And then suddenly you stopped because I didn't know what to do. Uh, he says, then you stopped and you began to pray for the sick. You prayed for the deaf. You prayed for the blind and he says when you begin to pray for the crippled he says suddenly I saw how his crutches just like well, like an invisible hand yanked them out from under him and just his crutches went flying and he was standing there like this without his crutches for the first time in his life he said he, he looked at his legs and his eyes went this big and, and he took one step 
he took two steps and everybody around him watching him and the next thing his hands go up in the air and he begins to shout Jesus is alive Jesus is alive Jesus is alive and then he said this man started walking towards the front and I began, I began to walk towards him, walk behind him and he came on the platform. He says, when he began to shout, Jesus is alive, the whole crowd saw him, the place went crazy. He says, this is what happened. Anyway, that campaign was six nights. We finished it and uh, uh, six months later, I was back in Orissa. I was in another town and that was my last time I was there and this brother came to see me and I asked him, I said, what happened? He says, in the immediate aftermath of the campaign, 70 churches were planted. He says, and you remember those fundamentalist Baptists who were angry at you because you were shouting hallelujah and praying for the sick? He says, they're casting out devils and speaking in tongues now. <laughs> he, says, he says, the place, he says, there's revival there. It's amazing. So we praise God. And that was the last time I was in Orissa. I have not been back there since. Anyway, 12 years passed. I didn't go back to India for 12 years. I just felt that time was over, that grace was lifted from me. I have a friend in South India, about, uh, I should say, maybe 1,000 miles from there, or 800 miles, 900 miles, quite far away. He has a Bible school. He has 700 students in his school, and his students have planted thousands of churches. So he basically taught them how to plant churches, you know, and walk in victory. It's a faith Bible school. So he asked me to come and teach. At that time, there was strong persecution of Christians in the western part of India. And they were burning churches, killing pastors. So I, I was talking to these young church planters. So I was, I was telling them, I said, remember one thing. No matter what the devil does, always remember that God will always do something bigger. I said, if you can keep sight of the fact that Jesus is bigger than the devil you're going to win but if your devil becomes bigger than your Jesus you're going to last uh, you're going to lose because remember that what you are going through is nothing new if you read the book of Acts that's I mean that's the history of the church uh, it's, it's persecution and under persecution the church always thrives as long as their God is bigger than the devil so I said if you, and then I told them this story I just told you I just told them this story when I finished the story, the bell rang, class was dismissed, I stood outside, and I see this young man walking towards me, and he's crying, he's got tears in his eyes. He walks up to me, I say, how can I help you? And he throws himself around my neck, and he weeps like a kid. I said, how can I help you? He says, Pastor, I didn't recognize you at first, but when you told this story, I remember you. He says, I was a 10-year-old kid sitting on my mother's knee, Right in the front. He says, I remember when that man came walking, shouting, Jesus is alive. He says, at that moment, he said, we all knew who he was. He said, that moment I gave my life to Jesus. And I heard the voice of God calling me to ministry. He says, it was 12 years ago. I finished high school, finished four years of college. And now I'm here to follow the purpose of God for my life. He says, but I'm not the only one. There's 10 of us who were at that meeting, who got saved in that meeting, who heard the call of God. He says, four girls and six guys, we are all here together. And he says, I'm going to tell the rest of them. He says, they probably remember you also when you told this story. And then I suddenly realized that, you know, the preaching of the gospel is always worth it. It is always worth it to preach 
the gospel because sometimes the fruit you see on a long-term basis. The preaching of the gospel is worth the cost. No matter what sacrifices we make, it is worth the cost. Anyway, about 10 years passed or 8 years, something like that passed. And uh, I think it was last year, I got an email from that brother in India. Now in those days, there was no email. And he said, he said, oh dear brother Christopher, I was wondering where you were. Somebody had told me you had died. You know, Indians can write like that. I heard you were dead. I'm glad you're alive. And, and he, says, he says, oh brother, I'd heard you were dead, but thank God you're alive. I said, thank you. I'm also thankful. And then, then he says, uh, you're welcome back to India again. He, just, he said, I just want to tell you what happened since 1989 when you were here last you know, 24 years ago, it was yesterday. He says, when you first came, he says, in that district, in that area where you held that crusade, the percentage of Christians was around 1%, 1.2%. He says, now, according to the Indian government statistics, it's 18.2%, and it is still growing. Hallelujah. You see, the gospel is always triumphant. The gospel is always triumphant. Now I know people are saying that Islam is spreading. And it may be spreading. But there's a fundamental difference between Islam and the gospel of Jesus. <coughs> Muhammad built his kingdom by shedding the blood of other men. But Jesus built his kingdom by shedding his own blood for other men. And the gospel is triumphant. Because that message about that man shedding his blood for sinners. That message is so powerful. It changes lives. It heals the sick. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. That is why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes. It's a miraculous. It's a life changing message. Hallelujah. It's a life giving message. It is a healing message. It's a message of deliverance. It's a message that gives hope to mankind. Hallelujah. That is the gospel that must be preached. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Thank you Father. Father, I thank you for this wonderful gospel message that we have received the gospel of life and light and faith. I thank you, Father. And because of the gospel, we have life available here this morning and we have healing and we have blessings available to whoever will come to you. Whosoever will, let him come and drink of the waters of life freely. Thank you, Jesus.